I read this week about a researcher who wanted to find out some of the values of middle schoolers. And so he had uh, surveyed several hundred within uh, Rochester, New York. And when he asked them who they wanted to have dinner with the most, who do you suppose that would be? If you guessed J-Lo, you would be right. J-Lo over anybody else. Of course, uh, far behind were Albert Einstein, the president, and Jesus. But J-Lo, there we go. When they ask about what would be your premier job to have, they wanted to be, number one, a personal assistant to an actor or actress or singer. That was their number one job. And you might think this is just a precursor for the apocalypse. Don't be so quick to judge the other person until you take a look at your own heart and realize how easy it is for us to maybe try to move our little status meter in every which way to try to get a little notice. And, of course, today it's with how many likes you get on Facebook, how many retweets you have, and so on. There are a lot of different ways that we try to get an ego boost. Consider Brian Regan's take on it. Take a look at this. I've seen that ten times and I laugh every time. Our passage is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Let's all stand as we take a look at it. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or in any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts." For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. So Father, I pray that you might speak to our hearts that we might become servants who serve with pure hearts before you. Lord, we know that as human beings, we struggle. Uh, We struggle with things like flattery and seeking the approval of others. It just seems to be embedded in our flesh. I pray that today you might give us one or two insights that would, would help us to address that to help us be more attached to your approval. Do a work in each of our hearts to make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The last time we were in our series, we covered a main point, that servants of God pursue his approval. And we noted that when we seek God's approval, we are faithful to the gospels, one of the sub-points that we made last week. This week, we're going to take a look at a next point that we are not motivated by the approval of men. So we speak not to please man, 
For we came with words of flattery. For we never came with words of flattery. What is flattery? It's just buttering people up to get an advantage, to try to to get something from a person, to get some favor done. Pleasing people means you're trying to get their approval and you keep from telling them perhaps the truth. We are not to be motivated by the approval of men. Paul said, I didn't come with flattering speech. I didn't come to seek people's approval, to just please people. Now, that doesn't mean that, therefore, we have to give our opinion at every opportunity. That's not what he's trying to say. Nor does it justify being rude to other people. It does raise the issue, though, of our unwillingness to align with truth and instead seek just the admiration or consent of others. Let's just think for a second about what it means to seek approval. When the view of ourselves is shaped by what others think of us, we have allowed the approval of men to shape us. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have to operate without being influenced by others. That is an impossible thing to do if you live in community. I'm not uh, suggesting that we be, you know, completely uh, separated from others and not be impacted. We can't do that. What I am suggesting is that we can choose to think and behave in a way that does not allow the thinking of others to dictate what we think about ourselves and to dictate our behavior. Let me throw this out for your consideration. If we embrace the idea that we are all made in the image of God and that as a child of God, I already have God's affection, then wouldn't seeking the approval of other people be greatly diminished? It should be. The problem is I'm not sure that's where we live all of the time in terms of understanding that we all have value because we're made in the image of God and as a child of God that I have this love relationship with God that I can experience at any time. Why would the approval of men be so important to us if God has already expressed his love to us? Psalm 149.4 says this, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. Turn to the person next to you and say, the Lord takes pleasure in you. The problem is, I'm not sure everybody believes that, right? Why would we go for the less favorable option? Why is it that we prefer a 1972 Pinto when we have offered us a 2016 Tesla? Take it for free. No, you know what? I'm going to go with the Pinto. What? This one is much more valuable. Why would you go for the lesser version? Sorry if you had a Pinto, but Tesla's better, right? It's like walking by sight and not by faith when we opt for the approval of men. Listen, when we go for the approval of people, we get what people can provide. When we operate within the sphere of God's approval, we get what God can provide. 
There's not a person in here who has not sought the approval of others. We all do it. So what we're trying to do here is maybe get us cognizant of it and maybe doing it a little less. Um, We seek approval of spouses. We seek approval of parents. And by the way, no matter how old you are, if your parents are still alive, you're still seeking their approval sometimes. We seek approval of loved ones, of, of, of friends. But when we do this, we find that there are diminishing returns. It's not that we can't be glad that we're loved by somebody. We should be and rejoice in that. It's not that we can't be pleased when others commend us. We live in loving community. You have a supportive spouse. These things should be celebrated and enjoyed. But consider that there is a certain emotional quality that comes with human relationships. And that certainly has some value, but it does not go to the deepest needs of the soul. That actually should define us as a child of God and provide deep satisfaction for us. I mean, why is it that the person who has everything, they, they, they have the spouse, they have the you know, awesome house, car, and they know that there's something missing? Why is that? There are deep spiritual needs that no human affection can satisfy. There's a difference between the nourishment of French fries and a healthy salad. Both may provide immediate satisfaction, but one has much greater nourishment. If we live only on a diet of human emotional support, it can only take us so far. It can only go to a certain level. When we ask of humans to satisfy the deeper needs of the soul when there's only temporal satisfaction, there is going to be deep disappointment. I'm talking about Christians. Deep disappointment, and it's where many people live. Because they're not able to control the pieces around them so the people can keep feeding them the way they want. You know, my spouse or my friends or my church, it's just not the way I want it. And it's not feeding us, and there's this hole. It's why, according to the book, The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce, had a longitudinal study. It followed people who had been through divorce. And guess what age group? suffered the most when their parents got a divorce. You think, well, probably small children. Wrong. You know who it was? Adult children. Adult children. In other words, they have lived in this uh, false security, this image of an idyllic home, only to have it shattered later in life. Earthly human resources cannot meet needs of the soul. And people who have not learned this experience profound loss because they cannot contextualize it. They cannot put it in perspective of of greater spiritual needs that have gone unmet. And so what happens is that human loss accentuates our deeper needs. And actually, it ought to be seen as a gift to remind us to address those needs of the soul. But what happens, we often blame others for not meeting those deeper needs. And we fail to recognize that there is a loving creator 
who is quietly trying to woo us to him to enjoy his embrace. In an interview with Rolling Stone, singer Elton John reflected on his father. And he's quoted as saying, they wouldn't hold you. They wouldn't say they loved you. I was afraid of my father. I was walking on eggshells the whole time, trying to get his approval. He's been dead for a long time, and I'm still trying to prove things to him. And asked what he meant, Elton replied, I still do things and say, Dad, you would have loved this, even though his father died in 1997. And he never saw him play, by the way. His father, he said, only touched him when he beat him. My mom always says, that's just the way we did it in those days. And it didn't affect you. And I'd say, what are you talking about? It affects me every day. Listen, I don't want to minimize abuse or parental neglect, but whatever human loss we experience, I want to deposit to you that we can still live fulfilled life, a fulfilled life as we abide in Christ. Yes, there are scars. Yes, there, there are hurts. But we have deep down in our soul a God-shaped vacuum that only he can fill. It's not always easy to detect when our hearts have turned away from Christ and turned towards maybe just human adoration. But I look at my own heart and I see if there's, if there's a prolonged maybe anger kind of lingering under the surface, prolonged hurt that hasn't been dealt with, I can maybe find the roots of that in some kind of disapproval. That's not that we have to act like nothing affects us, that we have to be cold-hearted and, you know, isolate ourselves from others. A lot of people try to do that, but it does nothing but put a Band-Aid over things. What we must do, though, what I'd suggest, is that we run to the anchor of our soul when disappointment arises. And if we don't run to our anchor, Christ, we are going to be susceptible to cheap substitutes to fill the soul. And this is the world that we live in, is it not? And I'm not pointing at all those other people. I'm talking about us, right? Because what we think. You know, if I got this disappointment, I got this dissatisfaction, I've got this discontent, my spouse needs to change, or I need to change a spouse. I need to change the church. I need to change the job. I need to get a new car, get a new house. Change the surroundings. That's going to plug up the hole. And it doesn't. It only postpones the disappointment until the newness rubs off on the next thing. So we have to daily find our satisfaction in Christ. Daily reminding ourselves that we are fit for his pleasure as children of God. Daily enjoying his presence, daily worshiping him. I loved what Nate had to say about somebody coming up, uh, coming up to him and saying, uh, I'm going to see if you can make me worship. Like, What? See, that's, that's when we, we put in somebody else's hands the responsibility that we have in our hearts. We have to take responsibility for that. And that's a, that's a watershed moment 
for many of us as far as spiritual maturity, when we quit blaming other people, take responsibility for our own hearts in terms of our worship and even our ability to experience love, to have our hearts open. When our hearts are aligned to eternity, we're going to run to God's approval. We're not going to be so easily beguiled by a cheap substitute. There was a situation in Acts 3 where Peter and John healed a man in the temple. And Acts 3.10 says that the people were filled with wonder and amazement. I mean, these apostles, these guys are amazing. These guys, I mean, I've never seen anybody like this. I mean, they were fawning over the amazing apostles, right? And Peter reminds the people, say, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We are nothing but men. And then he says, check this out. This is right after everybody fawning over him. And he says this, but you, you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. I mean, not only did he not accept their praise, he got in their grill and spoke the truth. You are guilty of insolence, violence, rejecting Christ, murder of Christ. I think it's safe to say Peter was not after their approval, right? Because if you go on and know the story, you read further in Acts, it cost him his life. It says in Ecclesiastes 7.5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Is it possible that our hearts could be so in tune with the Father's pleasure that no earthly pursuit will be seen as satisfactory in meeting those deeper needs? I think it is. I think it is possible for us to realize it's only God's approval that matters. It's not that it doesn't hurt when others disapprove. It's not that I'm, you know, I, I, I am this island unto myself. I'm not suggesting that. But it's, it's that, that it won't knock me off center. Yes, it hurts. There's going to be scars. But you know what? I'm going to get aligned. I'm not going to become bitter. I'm going to continue to love. I'm going to continue to serve. Listen to the words of, from Acts 20. The Apostle Paul talks about him. It says, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is saying, I am unwilling to accept cheaper pursuits to satisfy my soul. I am done running around trying to fill up my own status. I will take imprisonment if it means God's approval. I will take 
afflictions and even death if it means God's approval. Let us not ever elevate our situation above all of that. I once challenged a friend, a dear friend, who I, we were having a conversation, pointed out an issue from Scripture. He basically cast it aside and said this and said, hey, you don't know my situation because I had all of these things. He began to recount all the pain. And basically what he was saying is, I am not obligated to any of this stuff because my pain supersedes all of that. So I don't have to do any of it. It's quite a position to put ourselves in. Why? Well, when I'm king, then my desires, my pleasure, is what takes precedent. Paul continues in verses 5 and 6 when he says this in 1 Thessalonians. And he goes on and makes the point that we are not to use ministry opportunities for personal gain. He says that, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul is saying, I did not minister because of greed or seeking glory. I did not demand anything from you in terms of money or control or prestige, even though I had a position that would have given me the freedom to do so, but I knew it was not right to do so. I don't think I need to illustrate to any of us how greed can gut a ministry. It can gut the heart of a ministry. And by the way, it's easy to look at those that have more, but this is for all of us. It matters not the size of a ministry. A person's heart can be consumed with greed. A fledgling ministry can be just as preoccupied with money as an outwardly successful one, right? A small ministry can be just as preoccupied with numbers just as much as a larger one can. The issue is the heart, and God can see the heart. There are different kinds, by the way, of personal gain, not just, not just money. I mean, there's esteem. There's getting my ego filled. And just like Brian Regan was talking about, I will try to one-up somebody when I tell stories about this minister or that minister or what I was involved in, talking about the spiritual exploits that were done here. Oh, let me tell you this. And we start comparing ourselves with those who we deem as less significant to boost our own ego. So there's that. But then there's also the issue of control. I mean, some people have positions in ministry and then maybe circumstances move them out of that, and they don't know what to do with themselves because they no longer have this perceived control. And control can be a subtle beguiler. A good marker is when people no longer have the position, do they still serve? Do they still have just as much heart 
to serve others. I have a great amount of respect for men like Carrie, Dan, Joel, Gary, and others who served as leaders, former elders, honorable elders, women like Gail, Mary, Carrie, others who are not in a position of leadership in this season, but still value community, still value relationships, still serve. Why? Because their ego is not tied to the position. They don't need a position for their identity. They don't need the control. They realize that relationships supersede the ego. And they've learned to find their identity and significance in Christ. There's another way to detect an out-of-bounds ego of a person who's not really a servant. And that is when a person is in a position and they use that position to wield authority over others in inappropriate ways. Never being wrong. Beyond being questioned. Always feeling like they have to have their way in every situation. Why? Because I'm the leader. I mean, being a leader necessitates great humility. And by the way, this applies to not just in the church, but anywhere, right? Including the home. I mean, pride can cause things to really run amok. I mean, Paul could have demanded top treatment. It's a heady thing to be an apostle doing it all in the name of God. I like what Jay Kessler said, former president of Youth for Christ. He tells a story of a board meeting he had, and he told the board that God had talked to him to do this, and he wanted the board to do that. And after the meeting, a board member said this, and I quote, Jay, if you want me to be on your board and vote, that's fine, but don't bring me from Dallas to vote against God. Be careful about quoting God as your sole influence. And as a leader, I think we need to make it easy to get input, make it easy for people to disagree with us so we can have some checks and balances. If you constantly pull rank, constantly remind people of your position and your authority, you probably need a humility adjustment. You need some greater doses of it. Servanthood leadership holds authority with an open hand. Of course, Jesus was the perfect example of this, was he not? He gave his life as a ransom for many. He came not to, not to be served, but to what? To serve. What a great example of that. In fact, every time we take communion, it ought to be a reminder of us of a humility adjustment that we are worshiping the one who had his heart aligned to the approval of God. This is where our hearts need to be. And he was willing to go to the point of death in order to achieve that. It's a great example. Let's all bow our heads.